Caroline Hunink, James Canis, and David Green will read the scripture passage for us this morning. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke 16, 19 to 31. This can be found on page 1626 of your pew Bible. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away, with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. The rich man answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Abraham said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. One of the more prominent uh, parables of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, uh, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. If you uh, didn't, if you were not here last week, our uh, <clears throat> good neighbor cafe had a discussion about this parable. If you weren't here, I, I'd suggest uh, getting on uh, Facebook and looking up uh, that conversation and what they had to say. It was, um, I thought, a very helpful and insightful look at. Uh, at this parable. I also encourage you this morning to uh, keep your Bibles open with me. Um, again, the page of our text is 1626. Uh, we're going to be looking primarily at the whole chapter, so it may be helpful to, uh, to have some of those verses in front of you this morning. Um, brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, Jackie and I have gotten a lot of questions about our little trip to Nicaragua a week ago. Uh, it was part of our, our sabbatical, and so I thought I'd just begin by giving you a, a quick little summary of, of what happened on that trip. Um, when we actually had our feet on the ground, it was a, a wonderful time of meeting many of, of God's servants that are, are working in Nicaragua, many of the mission organizations. Uh, we did meet Wendy Gomez, who is the new director of Tesoros de Dios, which is 
one of the uh, organizations that we support through our mission fund. And we got a feel for Wendy's uh, passion for the ministry, her love for the children that she works with. So it was wonderful to meet her. We also um, had the privilege of meeting uh, Vinnie Adams, who I know that a number of you already know or knew previous to us. But we finally got to meet him. He, was, uh, he served as our host and our driver for a day. He showed us to Soros. He showed us some other mission organizations. And um, it was just wonderful to meet him and Kate and their children. And uh, after that, that first day of visiting to Soros, then we got to spend a few days um, visiting uh, some of the Partners Worldwide uh, workers down there. So Partners Worldwide is another uh, mission organization that, that we support here in our congregation. And they're doing some work in Nicaragua. They're working with farmers uh, primarily. There's a man there um, by the name of Mario, and uh, he's a local uh, farmer. Um, he heads an organization called PAK, P-A-K. I called him the leader of the PAK while we were down there. He didn't speak English, so he didn't catch that at all. Um, <clears throat> neither did you from the sound of it and the look of it. <clears throat> but uh, Mario was, uh, was just a delight, and he talked about how PAC PAC is an organization that's gathered up a number of farmers, uh, many of them poor, and they give them the technical skills to, uh, to know how to raise their coffee uh, more efficiently, in a better manner, better production. And then they also work together to market that coffee. So instead of each farmer selling their own goods um, and not getting a very good price, they obviously get together and they can demand a better price and a more secure contract and, and all of that. So a lot of really neat things going on. We actually got to go out into the hills and meet one of those coffee farmers and his family, and we were really out in the hills, believe me. Um, but it was, uh, it was just a wonderful thing to be a part of. So you'll probably hear more, um, but that's kind of a start. That's what we did in Nicaragua. Now, as I said, that was when we had our feet on the ground. But if you're going to understand that story, and, and when you ask, how was your trip, I never know quite what to say, because there was a prelude to that part of the story, and that was our day of travel, <clears throat> okay? So that day began with a 6 a.m. flight. We were supposed to go from here, I think, to Baltimore. We got on our plane. We got about 60 seconds into the air. We were elevating over Lake Michigan, and all of a sudden, I heard this loud Bang! Sounded like a shotgun. Not everybody heard it because everybody's got their earbuds in and stuff like that. I heard it. I thought, that can't be real good. Um, and sure enough, I looked over to my right and there was another bang. And I saw this time flames and kind of an explosion go out of the back of the engine. And I thought, no, this, this really can't be good. It was about this time that the plane stopped elevating and did one of these long circles back to Milwaukee, and we landed again safely. By the way, we weren't swimming in Lake Michigan or anything like that, so that was good. But that was the start of our day. That was the start of our trip. You have to understand the prelude to the real story when you ask, how was your trip? Because that little experience kind of threw me for the entire trip. So every time we walked up to a hotel desk or tried to rent a car or were out in traffic, I was always waiting for that other engine to explode. So you're kind of on pins and needles through the whole thing. How was your trip? Yeah, there's one story, but then there's a prelude to the story that impacts the story itself. Now, why am I telling you all this? 
Because this is sort of the way that Luke 16 works. Okay, there's this parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And we look at that parable and we think, you know, I pretty much understand this. It's about poor people and rich people and how rich people ought to take care of poor people and, and give their money perhaps. And that's pretty much the story. But there is sort of a prelude to that story as well. And, and hopefully that prelude can inform us a bit on what Jesus is, is really telling us here. So with that in mind, I'd sort of like to, to look at Luke chapter 16. There's some of this prelude that goes even earlier or further back in Luke. But we're going to start at the beginning of chapter 16 with the parable of the shrewd manager. All right? And I'm just going to give you some words this morning to think about as we make our way through this text. And the first word is, is just this idea of friends, okay? Friends and, and friendship. <clears throat> and the parable of the shrewd manager is a parable or a story that Jesus gives us that, quite honestly, it doesn't really seem very Christian. And a lot of people have a struggle with that. It's a story really about a money manager who's fired for probably some of his unethical practices, but it's a story about a money manager who's about to be fired. So he's thinking, you know, about the uncertainty of an unemployed future and what that might bring, and he decides that he's going to try to give his future a little security. He's going to try and shore things up a bit. So what he does is he calls in his master's debtors, people who owe his master money, and he fixes the books. So he rewrites their accounts. Some of them he slashes in half, you only owe this much. Others he just lowers by a, a smaller percentage perhaps. But what he's doing there is he's using someone else's money, his master's money, to make friends for himself. Okay? That's why they call him shrewd. He's placing these debtors, his master's debtors, in his own debt. In other words, he's making friends for himself who will be able to help him someday in the future. Okay? He's making friends for himself who will one day be able to help him. He's sort of like the Godfather. Remember Mario Puzo's books, The Godfather? And... Uh, People come and the Godfather does them a favor, right? And they come before the Godfather. They say, Godfather, thank you so much. And what does he always say? He says, don't thank you. Don't thank me. Just remember I did you a favor. Okay? It's something for the future. You know that you're going to get called back for that favor. But that's sort of what this shrewd manager is doing. He's saying, don't thank me. Just, just remember in the future that I did you a favor. Now, what strikes people crazy about this parable is that at the end of it, the manager actually, or the, the master actually commends his manager for his actions. In other words, he sort of chuckles at the guy and he says, I knew there was a reason I hired you in the first place. What gets us even more, perhaps, is the fact that Jesus summarizes this story in verse 9, and he seems to commend the guy as well. And he looks at his disciples, he looks at all of us, and he says this. He says, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. 
to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, that is, when your wealth is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So use worldly wealth, really, in a way to put other people in your debt who can help you later on. Use worldly wealth to gain friends. Now, what I want you to see here is Jesus connects two concepts here. He connects this concept of worldly wealth and this idea of friends, okay? Use worldly wealth to make friends for yourself. But not just any friends, friends who are going to be able to help you in the future. Now, Jesus probably wasn't the first one to connect those two concepts, right, of worldly wealth and friends. I mean, we've connected those dots in our own minds since we were little kids. We've connected this idea of friends and worldly wealth and those who can help us, not just in the future, but really those who can help us right now, right here in the present, right? Just think of the scenario of the, uh, of the poor man or the poor woman who wants to marry wealth, right? Who, who's looking for that proverbial doctor to marry. It's that whole idea of, okay, if I can marry someone wealthy, I'll be taken care of right here right now in the presence. Jesus is talking about something similar, but he's talking about making sure you have help in the future. Okay? Think of your future. Make friends thinking ahead, thinking of the future. Now, let's think about how Jesus and how Luke may have prepped us for that particular idea. Okay? Way back in Luke chapter 2, if you remember the story of Mary singing her song after she's pregnant with Jesus, and she sings about what God has done, right? The things that God has done. She sings about the coming of an upside-down kingdom, a kingdom that flips everything in this world on its ear. She sings about how God brought rulers down from their thrones and he lifted up the humble. She sings of how God filled the hungry with good things, but he sent the rich away empty. It's an upside-down kingdom, right? So there is an upside, or is there, let's ask, is there an upside-down version of this idea of how we use worldly wealth also, right? We've got this idea we use worldly wealth to make friends so we have a better present, a better here and now. Is there more of a kingdom version of that concept? Well, how about Proverbs 19? Proverbs 19, 17, which says this, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. That means the Lord will repay you for your deed. Now, what's going on here in that proverb is the poor and the Lord are parallel here. Okay? They're parallel. In other words, being generous to the poor is like being generous to God. Lending to the poor is like lending to God. God associates himself here with the poor. God says, if you lend to the poor, they're not the ones who will owe you back in the future I will owe you. It's like putting God in your debt. Imagine that. Did you know that you could put God in your debt? 
What God is doing here is he is associating himself so closely with the poor. He's saying the poor are my friends. These are my friends. And lending to my friends is like lending to me. If you put my friends in your debt, I will be in your debt. Jesus isn't saying here, friends, make friends with the rich and the powerful and the beautiful and the famous, and they'll be able to help you in the future. He's saying make friends with the poor. They will be able to help you in the future. Use your money to make friends with the poor, with people who are actually going to be able to help you. Why? Because they're God's friends. The poor are connected. They're connected in ways that none of us could ever imagine. Make friends with them because they will be able to help you one day. It's the concept of friends. Who are the friends of God and how ought we to treat those friends of God? Second, second thing I want you to think about before we get into the parable itself is is the idea of Christ and that idea of king, right? It's Palm Sunday when Jesus was acknowledged and lauded as the king. But what does it really mean that Jesus is our king? What does it mean to shout, Hosanna, save us, Hosanna to the king? Well, let's think about this, all right? Jesus is teaching in these previous verses, he's teaching about wealth and how we are to use wealth. So verses 10 through about 13 he's teaching us all about money and what we're supposed to do with money he says in verse 13 you can't serve both god and money don't let money become a god in your life he says don't let it become an idol something you worship now notice how the pharisees respond in verse 14 they sneer at jesus they scoff at him They basically say you're crazy, Jesus. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't even have any money of your own. How would you know anything about wealth and how we're supposed to handle it? Which begs the question, okay, how do the Pharisees handle their wealth? What do they think about wealth? What do they know about wealth? And and the answer um, Luke gives us in verses 14 and 15 is that they loved money. The Pharisees loved money. And what they did is they built a theology around that love. Okay? A theology that actually promoted that kind of love. So so folks in this day believed that rich people were blessed by God. That's why they were rich. They'd done something good, something pleasing to God, and he was rewarding them with wealth. On the other hand, if you were poor, if you had nothing, you were cursed by God. Maybe it was something you did, something one of your parents did, someone down the line, but there's a reason why somewhere you were cursed. Wealthy, you were blessed. Poor, you were cursed. Now remember, Jesus is about to tell a parable that's going to flip all of that on its head because it's going to tell us about a rich man who ends up cursed and a poor man who ends up blessed. It's going to show us what Jesus says about wealth, that what we highly value and highly esteem 
might be something that God actually detests. Strong language here. What he finds abominable. But the immediate point that we need to hear is, is Jesus worth listening to on this topic? More broadly than that, is Jesus worth listening to on any topic? Why should the Pharisees believe what Jesus has to say when he says, don't lift up money to be an idol? Or God might find your love for wealth detestable. Why should we listen to Jesus about that? This gets a little complicated, but if you look at verse 16, Jesus begins to talk about John the Baptist and the law and the prophets and the kingdom of God. Okay, And what he's saying there is you have to... You have to see John the Baptist as kind of a transition point. Throughout the Old Testament, the law and the prophets have dictated God's will for all, of, all people and all creation. You get to John the Baptist, John has one foot in that kingdom, the kingdom of the law and the prophets. John preached the law. He was a prophet. He said, repent, you've broken the law. You have to confess of your sins. Why? Because we are preparing for what? For the new age of the kingdom. And for the one who will bring that new age, that new kingdom in, that is the Messiah, that is Jesus Christ. And what Jesus says here, a little different translation than what you have in your Bibles is, everyone must take this opportunity to press into that kingdom. In other words, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees and to his disciples, folks, you have to recognize what time it is. We've transitioned from the law and the prophets to the new age of the kingdom. And in this new age of the kingdom, who is the king? It's Jesus. Who gets to instruct us in the law? Who gets to tell us how it is that we ought to live? It's Jesus. Jesus says, now is the time, now is the opportunity to press your way into the kingdom. How do you do that? You come to Jesus, our Savior, the Messiah. You submit to him. You ask him for salvation. And you enter into a kingdom in which he is the king. This is a kingdom of greater righteousness, a greater righteousness, a more complete righteousness. What Jesus is getting at is this idea that he did not come to abolish the law. He didn't come to put it behind him, to wipe it away, to get rid of it. He came rather to fulfill it. He came to interpret that law, to intensify that law. He came to apply that law to life. And the Pharisees had to decide... Are we going to really acknowledge this Jesus as king? Or are we going to call him crazy? Are we going to tell him he doesn't know anything? And friends, each and every one of us has to answer that same question. We are in the time, the age of the kingdom. Now is the opportunity. Will you come to Jesus, confess him as Savior and Lord, as the Son of God? And then once in, will you actually bow your knee and live life the way he instructs us to live our lives? Do you recognize the time? Do you recognize the King? 
Sorry, I'm moving my notes the wrong way. <clears throat> Got a little too into that particular point. What Jesus says here, what he is doing here, is he is saying, I have come to intensify the law. You've heard the law of Moses. There's no denying that. The law of Moses said there should be no poor in the land. You've heard the prophets. The prophets have said, treat one another justly. Make sure that you take care of the widows and the orphans and the poor. Jesus says, I've come to do even more than that. What Jesus says is, I want you to make friends with the poor. I want you to make friends. He says, when you worship God and not money, when you live an upside-down life, this is what it amounts to. You make friends with the poor. The Pharisees scoffed at him. They were missing their opportunity to press their way into the kingdom. They would not accept Jesus as their rightful king. Now, with those things in mind, okay, those concepts of friends and Jesus actually being our king and the one who interprets the law, let's, let's take a look at this parable itself. And I just want to mention four things here. Okay, the first one is a name. A name. The name Lazarus. Um, if you were a part of or if you heard the cafe conversation last week, what you heard is that the name Lazarus, or the person of Lazarus in this parable, is the only character in any of Jesus' parables to actually receive a name. It's the only person that Jesus names. What can we, what's the implication of that? What can we learn from that? The first thing, this is about dignity. This is about dignity. Jesus gives a name to the poor. Jesus gives a name to the person at your gate. Jesus gives a name to that person on the other side of the chasm. And this is in direct contrast, friends, with how you and I often look at people in our world. Okay? We often, as human beings, throw people into these nameless, faceless categories or groups right? We call people the poor. They're the poor. Or they're the beggars. That's the LGBTQ community. Um, those are immigrants or migrants over there. Those are people from a different race over there. Those are people from a different political party over there. Do we actually know any of the names of the people in those groups? Jesus sees every one of them as people with dignity. His own creations, his own image bearers. Do we see that? Um, some of you may remember uh, the film, um, <clears throat> The Blind Side. The Blind Side was about the, the football player Michael Orr, who was adopted. He was a black, black kid adopted into a white family, a white, very wealthy family. And... Uh, excellent football player and they were trying to 
prep him so that he could get into college to play college football, get a scholarship and, and sort of be on his way. And he was struggling with his grades, right? And so they wanted to hire a tutor for him. And so they're interviewing all these people to tutor. And Miss Sue comes in to tutor, if you remember this scene, if you saw the movie. Um, and she's doing the interview and everything is great. And then at the end of the interview, she says to Mrs. Tui, she says, I just feel like there's one thing I have to get off my chest. I have to tell you. Um, before this interview is over, and everybody's kind of leaning in, like, what is she going to say? And she says, I'm a Democrat. <clears throat> and uh, the line of the film is, is spoken a little later by Mr. Tui, um, who says to his wife later, this is after they hire Miss Sue, and, and he says to his wife, who would have thought we'd have a black son before we knew a Democrat? Okay? And... And friends, that's just the way things work in our world. We're in one group, and there are all these other people in other groups, and we really don't know their names. And we really don't know them. And, and the first thing that Jesus is telling us here by giving Lazarus a name is that these people have dignity. They have dignity in my eyes, and therefore they ought to have dignity in the eyes of my people. The second thing that this name is about is about friendship. Okay, we just talked about friends. This name is also about friendship. I'm convinced of that. Let me, um, <clears throat> let me just ask, do you think Jesus just picks a random name? I mean, this is... The only parable he ever gives a name to somebody, does he pick that name at random, do you think? I guess it's possible. I don't think he did. Remember Proverbs 19. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. God and the poor are associated. God are my, or the poor are my friends, says God. Lazarus, in this parable, Lazarus is poor. Lazarus is a beggar. Lazarus is in bad shape. If anyone needs a loan, it's Lazarus. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. Lazarus, the name means God helps. God helps. That's who Lazarus is. But more than that, think about the Gospel of John. In chapter 11, you read there that Jesus had a friend. Jesus had a friend, and that friend died. And Jesus went to his tomb, shortest verse in the Bible, every one of us memorized it, Jesus wept. He wept over the death of his friend. What was his friend called? Lazarus. Lazarus was Jesus' friend. When Jesus spoke this parable, you think he just picked a name out of a hat for this poor beggar, this person who is a friend of God? Or did he very intentionally give this person the name of his very own personal friend? This is about friendship. Lazarus is a friend of God. Not so much the friend of the rich man. The rich man just ignores him. Somebody who really could have helped him in the future. Next idea here is chasm, this chasm, this idea of a chasm, right? 
Abraham has to explain to the rich man why Lazarus can't come running to him with a little bit of water and help him. And uh, what he says is, hey, there's a big chasm here between, between me and you. Lazarus can't cross that. And obviously, it's, it's a chasm between heaven and hell, right? Um, you can't get from one to the other. But more than that, it's a chasm between the rich man and Lazarus. And it's been dug by the rich man himself. There's a chasm between the rich man's table and his gate. And he can't seem to get from one to the other. It's a chasm that he has dug all on his own. And if you notice, as you read through the parable, that chasm never gets bridged. I mean, the rich man, he refers to Lazarus by name, yes, but he's always a servant, he's always a slave. Can you, can you send Lazarus to go fetch this, to go do that? Send him to go to my brothers. There's a huge chasm. He knows Lazarus' name, but he doesn't treat him as a friend. Friends, we have all of these chasms in our life as well. Some of them we've spoken of already. Some of them are fairly obvious to us. Some of them we don't even know about. When you think about the war that's going on in Ukraine right now, I mean, what impact does that have on your life? What have you thought about recently? I, I heard a joke the other day. <clears throat> it was a man who phoned the police and said that, that he had been held up at his corner gas station. Would they come out and deal with it? And so the police came out. They were interviewing him, and they said, can you give me a description of, of the person who held you up? And he said, yeah, I can, pump number five. And that's kind of what it's come to for us, right? Well, there's this war far away. How is it impacting us? Well, we have to pay a little more for gas. Or inflation is, is rising, and our bread costs a little more, things like that. Sometimes we don't understand the chasm that's between us. Um, economists tell us that the vast majority of Ukrainian wheat and commodity, commodities are not going to make it to market this year. And that's going to impact world trade prices incredibly. Okay, all commodities are going to go up. What that means for us is, yeah, a little bit of inflation. What it means for people in poor countries of the world is that they won't be able to eat. There's a chasm. And oftentimes, we're not even aware of that chasm. Why is that? There's a third concept here, and that is this idea of the son of Abraham. This idea of Abraham keeps coming up in this text. Again, why Abraham? I mean, to the rich man, I think this term represents status. To Jesus, it's about relationship. Notice in verse 12, the rich man, um, in his torment in hell, he calls out to whom? It's not just Abraham, he calls out to Father Abraham. Father Abraham, send, send help. I think that ought to remind us in the Gospel of Luke of what John the Baptist said way at the beginning of this Gospel. When he warned the crowds who were coming for baptism, he said, and don't you dare claim to be children of Abraham or claim to have Abraham as your father. He said, produce fruit 
in keeping with repentance. Here we have a man claiming Abraham as his father. There's no fruit. Friends, we think that this neighbor love stuff is kind of optional. Yeah, I might do it. Yeah, it's one of the big two commandments. I might take that seriously. Or I might not. That was the attitude of the rich man. Jesus sees here this term, and it's about relationship to Jesus. You get to the end of this parable, and there's a huge irony here, friends. Jesus says, or the rich man says, hey, I'm worried about my brothers. I'm concerned about my brothers. They're living the same way that I am. Could you send Lazarus to go tell them to straighten out their lives? And Jesus had to be thinking, okay? Here's Lazarus sitting at Abraham's side, truly a child of Abraham, but the rich man doesn't see that in any way. He's concerned about his blood brothers. He's not concerned about any other brothers in Abraham. Jesus, I think, wants us to see the relationship that we have with our fellow human beings. And then finally, this idea of king comes back again. Remember who it is that tells this parable. It's Jesus, the king. Does he have any authority to speak these things into our lives? And what is it that he actually speaks? We started out by saying, well, this parable is about, yeah, the rich ought to take care of the poor a little bit or at least be a little friendlier to them. Then we said, well, Jesus is someone who came not to just fulfill the law of Moses, but to intensify it, to show us what, is this, what does this really mean? How are we really supposed to love the poor? And again, I'll come back to that term friend. Okay? Jesus does not tell us here in the end, well, give all your money away, because that's going to solve all the problems. It's not what he says. He says something more than that. And this gets into where money has become an idol in our lives. What is it when something becomes an idol? It becomes a god. It becomes bigger than it is. Right? It promises more than it can deliver. And that's so often how we view money. It's not just something that we hoard for ourselves. It also becomes something that we think is the answer to all the world's problems. And if there's a poor man sitting at the gate, Jesus must be saying, well, give him some money and that'll heal it. And that's not what Jesus says. What he says is there's a poor man at your gate. His name is Lazarus. He's a friend of God's. He's a friend of mine. And I want him to be your friend. You don't have to make friends with everyone in the world. I understand that's impossible. But there's someone on the other side of that chasm that you've dug, and he or she has a name. And I want you to look at them as your friend. Get to know their name. 
And when you do, you will immediately find out that what they need is a lot more than money. Yeah, maybe they'll need some money. But you know what? God says, hey, I've got plenty of that. Don't worry about that. They might need some money, but probably more than that, they need a friend. They need a relationship. And as you build that relationship, you'll find that maybe they don't have a family of their own. Maybe they don't have anyone to love them or care for them. Maybe they've had some tragedy in their life that they are so broken they can't go out and get a job. There are so many things about Lazarus that we don't know. And Jesus isn't just telling us to throw a little money his way, to write a check. Jesus is telling us, get to know him. Fill in the chasm. Invite him to your table. Build a relationship, and then you'll know how to love. Lazarus is your neighbor. He's got a name. Why should we do this? Because we are people who have names as well. We're different than the rest of the world. This morning, Jesus put a name on four little children. And if you're baptized, he's put a name on you. And he has told you, I crossed a chasm that we thought could never be bridged. The chasm between you and God. But I crossed that chasm. I died on the cross so you would have a name child of God. We're different. God calls us to be neighbors. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord Jesus, you call us to cross chasms, to bridge chasms, and it's all because you bridged a chasm for us. The greatest chasm of all. The chasm between ourselves and our holy God. You not only bridged that chasm, but you made us God's dear children. We can call your Father our Father. All because of what you have done. And so Lord... Since that chasm was filled, we know that there is no chasm on this earth that's impossible to fill. And fill us with the same love that is in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.